This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com. This reading by Gordon Mackenzie. Notes from the Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Part 2, Chapter 10. A quarter of an hour later, I was rushing up and down the room in a frenzied impatience. From minute to minute, I went up to the screen and peeped through the crack at Lisa. She was sitting on the ground with her head leaning against the bed. It must have been crying. But she did not go away, and that irritated me. This time she understood it all. I had insulted her finally, but there's no need to describe it. She realized that my outburst of passion had been simply revenge, a fresh humiliation, and that to my earlier, almost causeless hatred was added now a personal hatred, born of envy. Though I do not maintain positively that she understood all this distinctly, but she certainly did fully understand that I was a despicable man and what was worse, incapable of loving her. I know I shall be told that this is incredible, but it is incredible to be as spiteful and stupid as I was. It may be added that it was strange I should not love her, or at any rate appreciate her love. Why is it strange? In the first place, by then I was incapable of love. For I repeat, with me loving meant tyrannizing and showing my moral superiority. I have never in my life been able to imagine any other sort of love, and have nowadays come to the point of sometimes thinking that love really consists in the right, freely given by the beloved object, to tyrannize over her. Even in my underground dreams, I did not imagine love except as a struggle. I began it always with hatred, and ended it with moral subjugation. And afterwards, I never knew what to do with the subjugated object. And what is there to wonder at in that, since I had succeeded in so corrupting myself, since I was so out of touch with real life, as to have actually thought of reproaching her and putting her to shame for having come to me to hear fine sentiments, and did not even guess that she had come not to hear fine sentiments, but to love me, because to a woman all reformation, all salvation from any sort of ruin, and all moral renewal is included in love, and can only show itself in that form. I did not hate her so much, however, when I was running about the room and peeping through the crack in the screen. I was only insufferably oppressed by her being here. I wanted her to disappear. I wanted peace, to be left alone in my underground world. Real life oppressed me with its novelty so much that I could hardly breathe. 
but several minutes passed and she still remained, without stirring, as though she were unconscious. I had the shamelessness to tap softly at the screen as though to remind her. She started, sprang up, and flew to seek her kerchief, her hat, her coat, as though making her escape from me. Two minutes later she came from behind the screen and looked with heavy eyes at me. I gave a spiteful grin, which was forced, however, to keep up appearances, and I turned away from her eyes. "'Good-bye,' she said, going towards the door. I ran up to her, seized her hand, opened it, thrust something in it, and closed it again. Then I turned at once and dashed away in haste to the other corner of the room to avoid seeing anyway. I did mean a moment since to tell a lie, to write that I did this accidentally, not knowing what I was doing through foolishness, through losing my head. But I don't want to lie. And so I will say straight out that I opened her hand and put the money in it, from spite. It came into my head to do this while I was running up and down the room and she was sitting behind the screen. But this I can say for certain. Though I did that cruel thing purposefully, it was not an impulse from the heart, but came from my evil brain. This cruelty was so affected, so purposefully made up, so complete a product of the brain, of books, that I could not even keep it up a minute. First I dashed away to avoid seeing her, and then in shame and despair rushed after Lisa. I opened the door in the passage, and I began listening. Lisa! Lisa! I cried on the stairs, but in a low voice, not boldly. There was no answer, but I fancied I heard her footsteps lower down on the stairs. "'Lisa!' I cried, more loudly. No answer. But at that minute I heard the stiff outer glass door open heavily with a creak and slam violently. The sound echoed up the stairs. She had gone. I went back to my room in hesitation. I felt horribly oppressed. I stood still at the table, beside the chair in which she had sat, and looked aimlessly before me. A minute passed. Suddenly I started. Straight before me, on the table, I saw... In short, I saw a crumpled blue five-ruble note the one I had thrust into her hand a minute before. It was the same note. It could be no other. There was no other in the flat. So she had managed to fling it from her hand on the table at the moment when I had dashed into the further corner. Well, I might have expected that she would do that. Might I have expected it? No. I was such an egoist. I was so lacking in respect for my fellow-creatures that I could not even imagine she would do so. 
I could not endure it. A minute later I flew like a madman to dress, flinging on what I could at random and ran headlong after her. She could not have got two hundred paces away when I ran out into the street. It was a still night, and the snow was coming down in masses and falling almost perpendicularly, covering the pavement and the empty street as though with a pillow. There was no one in the street. No sound was to be heard. The street lamps gave a disconsolate and useless glimmer. I ran two hundred paces to the crossroads and stopped short. Where had she gone? And why was I running after her? Why? To fall down before her, to sob with remorse, to kiss her feet, to entreat her forgiveness? I longed for that. My whole breast was being rent to pieces, and never, never shall I recall that minute with indifference. But what for? I thought. Should I not begin to hate her, perhaps even tomorrow, just because I had kissed her feet today? Should I give her happiness? Had I not recognized that day for the hundredth time what I was worth? Should I not torture her? I stood in the snow, gazing into the troubled darkness, and pondered this. And will it not be better? I mused fantastically, afterwards at home, stifling the living pang of my heart with fantastic dreams. Will it not be better that she should keep the resentment of the insult forever? Resentment! Why, it is purification. It is a most stinging and painful consciousness. Tomorrow I should have defiled her soul and have exhausted her heart, while now the feeling of insult will never die in her heart. And however loathsome the filth awaiting her, the feeling of insult will elevate and purify her. By hatred. Hmm. Perhaps, too, by forgiveness. Will all that make things easier for her, though? And indeed, I will ask on my own account here an idle question. Which is better, cheap happiness or exalted sufferings? Well, which is better? So I dreamed, as I sat at home that evening, almost dead with the pain in my soul. Never had I endured such suffering and remorse. Yet could there have been the faintest doubt when I ran out from my lodging that I should turn back halfway. I never met Lisa again, and I have heard nothing of her. I will add, too, that I remained for a long time afterwards pleased with the phrase about the benefit from resentment and hatred in spite of the fact that I almost fell ill from misery. Even now, so many years later, all this is somehow a very evil memory. 
I have many evil memories now, but hadn't I better end my notes here? I believe I made a mistake in beginning to write them anyway. I have felt ashamed all the time I've been writing this story. So it's hardly literature so much as corrective punishment. Why, to tell long stories showing how I have spoiled my life through morally rotting in my corner, through lack of fitting environment, through divorce from real life, and rankling spite in my underground world, would certainly not be interesting. A novel needs a hero, and all the traits for an anti-hero are expressly gathered together here, and what matters most, it all produces an unpleasant impression. For we are all divorced from life. We are all cripples. Every one of us. More or less. We are so divorced from it that we feel at once a sort of loathing for real life, and so cannot bear to be reminded of it. Why, we have come almost to looking upon real life as an effort, almost as hard work, and we are all privately agreed that it is better in books. And why do we fuss and fume sometimes? Why are we perverse and ask for something else? We don't know what ourselves. It would be the worse for us if our petulant prayers were answered. Come, try. Give any one of us, for instance, a little more independence, untie our hands, widen the spheres of our activity, relax the control, and we... Yes, I assure you, we should be begging to be under control again at once. I know that you will very likely be angry with me for that, and will begin shouting and stamping. Speak for yourself, you will say, and for your miseries in your underground holes, and don't dare to say all of us. Excuse me, gentlemen. I am not justifying myself with that all of us. As for what concerns me in particular, I have only in my life carried to an extreme what you have not dared to carry halfway. And what's more, you have taken your cowardice for good sense, and have found comfort in deceiving yourselves. So that perhaps, after all, there is more life in me than in you. Look into it more carefully. Why, we don't even know what living means now, what it is, and what it is called. Leave us alone without books, and we shall be lost and in confusion at once. We shall not know what to join on to, what to cling to, what to love, and what to hate, what to respect, and what to despise. We are oppressed at being men. Men with a real individual body and blood. We are ashamed of it. 
we think it a disgrace and try to contrive to be some sort of impossible generalized man. We are stillborn, and for generations past have been begotten, not by living fathers, and that suits us better and better. We are developing a taste for it. Soon we shall contrive to be born somehow from an idea. But enough. I don't want to write more from underground. The notes of this paradoxalist do not end here, however. He could not refrain from going on with them. But it seems to us that we may stop here. End of chapter 10 End of Notes from the Underground